the doctors bamboozled by jargon, blinded by science, and turning to Google in the hope it'll become your new best friend. Well, this is the concept behind Naked Health. It's to strip medicine right back down to its basics, to cut out the jargon, tell it as it is, and really make it accessible to everybody. My name is Penny Ward, and I currently work as a GP. I feel that in my role, I'm touched by so many lives, so many stories and experiences. I want to take you on these journeys with me, seen through my eyes as a doctor, but told using the voices of everyday people. And so here we have it, the very first episode of my podcast, Naked Health. I almost feel like there should be a little fanfare on here. Um, And if you all knew how long I had been musing over this and planning it and putting it back back on the shelf and back off again depending on other things that have been going on you'd probably all be doing a little fanfare with me i'm dr penny ward i'm a gp currently based in southampton in the uk i kind of feel the need to date stamp this in reasons that will become clear so it's sunday april the 19th 2020 i'm currently sat outside it's a little bit windy but you can hear the bird song there's no aeroplane tracks in the sky and we're currently three weeks into lockdown here in the uk with coronavirus covid19 so the world is a strange crazy surreal place at the moment but i guess i also feel that i've been given the gift of time time where i'm not running around to after school club to various extracurricular activities with children yes it's busy in that i'm a doctor for the nhs and our pressures and our services and our demands and time are pulled tightly and in very different directions to what we're used to but in the evenings i'm able to sit down and read i I'm able to take off the shelf projects such as this one, which have been put aside probably too many times in favour of things that have seemed more pressing or more urgent. So welcome, welcome to my podcast. I hope that you enjoy it. The reason and the concept behind Naked Health originally started out that I felt there was there was a gap really for people who wanted to hear more about people's journeys with various illnesses and diseases and conditions but they didn't want to go onto Google onto various forums that might be full of fake news or really only telling us the worst of stories because what's the point really of putting on a public forum things that have gone well people don't want to turn to Google and necessarily be filled with statistics and facts and evidence and things that are written in black and white which kind of talk more about the population at scale rather than them as an individual. So this first episode is about breast cancer and it's an interview with a lady called Sarah who believes just that, that she's not a statistic. She didn't want to know her prognosis. Um, She really just wanted to know how she could get through the day to day and what was in front of her. And she wrote a book called Ticking Off Breast Cancer after her journey was over and after she was in remission hoping that this could help to guide somebody else and help them know really what the answers were to questions that they might have answers to questions that they might not even have realized they needed to ask so I will leave you with our interview 
and you can hear her wise words yourself. So I'm sat here today with Sarah Leanna Gay and I feel absolutely privileged so thank you so much for talking to me. You've just had your first book published, Ticking Off Breast Cancer, which I've read and actually didn't ever want to get to the end of because I enjoyed it so much. Can I just ask what made you want to write the book and what really was the purpose of it in the first first instance? Um, well, thanks very much for coming today, Penny, to talk to me and giving me an opportunity to tell you about my book. Um, I think in order to explain why I wrote the book and and had it published, I have to kind of go back to the website first. Um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in um, October 2016 and um, I felt really overwhelmed by going online um, looking for information about getting through treatment. I, I just wanted to find the practical information and there's a lot of information out there online and some of it's a bit scary some of it's out of date some of it's unreliable some of it is irrelevant and so when I came to the towards the end of my treatment I set up the website that I'd I'd wanted when I was going through treatment which just gives some very straightforward practical advice for for going through breast cancer treatment and um, as I was putting the website together, which is not about me at all. It's purely practical advice and links to um, other really good information online. Um, I started to write about my own personal experience. Um, my personal experience w- was not the worst, not the easiest. It was just what it was. And I felt that I just needed to get it out of my head um, writing it out, um, writing what happened from start to finish and then once I'd got all of that out of my head on a sort of therapeutic level um, I, I had to think about what I was going to do with it and it just seemed to me that the right thing to do would be to incorporate some of the practical elements from the website and put it into a book for people so someone who was starting breast cancer treatment can read it to give them a a little bit of a heads up of what to expect. Someone who is going through it, has just finished treatment, can read it and relate to it, feel a little bit less alone, know that someone else has been there. And also a big part of the reason for writing the book and, and getting it published was I wanted friends and family to know more about what was going on with their loved one who was going through it so that they were in a better position to to help or um, support that person. I, I have to say I'm absolutely in awe of you to be able to go not only through what you went through but be able to put it down on paper, get your book published but also think about everybody else at the same time and do the, the checklists as you were going along I think you've made it very clear in your book that this, whilst it was your personal experience, everybody's different. Um, I think you'd said that not everybody's cancer journey is the same, but you've given what happened to you and there were very practical advice. And the bit that I really like is that you've always said that you're never relying on the cancer being defined by a person's stage or grade of treatment, that you want to stay away from the statistics. 
Because that's what scared you, wasn't it, when, when you looked online? That's right. So um, because of the the way that my breast cancer presented itself, um, which anyone who reads the book will find out that I didn't have a lump in my breast. Um, it, w- it was found because I had a lump in my armpit, which turned out to be my lymph nodes swollen with breast cancer cells, although following numerous tests and scans, they couldn't find the originating tumour. So I was not given a, a stage or grade. Um, and actually, for me, not having that, I went through my treatment without knowing that. And I think that also anyone going through breast cancer treatment, regardless of stage or grade or, you know, whether you have chemotherapy or not, or a lumpectomy or a mastectomy or auxiliary no clearance or not, whatever you go through, we're all going through similar fears, struggles, worries, anxieties. We've all had that you've got cancer diagnosis and that's sort of an um, I think an umbrella over the top of us all which means that we're all going to have to deal with these struggles and so I think it's important in my book and website that I don't talk about grades and stages because I'm trying to I guess make it all inclusive for anyone who's got breast cancer or has a family member with breast cancer. What I found really useful, I was, I think I was coming, I think it's the second to last chapter of your book and I got a text message from a friend whose husband's just been diagnosed with cancer and I know it seems daft because normally I would text something back and it would just come straight from the heart and not necessarily think about it. I went back to your checklist to make sure that I didn't write something that perhaps would be unhelpful or say something like, oh, I know somebody in the same situation and this happened to them, because it is the individual journey and you have to be so... That's absolutely right. don't you? Yeah, yeah, I think you do. And I think, um, to your point about someone telling you that they've got cancer or their partner, friend, whoever's got cancer, um, it it's so easy to just say something off the top of your head I think naturally actually what's interesting is naturally when someone is given bad news the natural reaction is for that recipient of the bad news is to try and diffuse that and to try and find something that will make both them and the giver of the bad news feel a little bit better and quite often the sentence that you start with is well at least so for me I had, well, at least it's the good cancer to get. At least it's breast cancer. (laughs) At least they found it early. And starting a sentence, for example, with at least is never a good idea because it diminishes the seriousness of what's actually going on. So for someone to say to you, to me, when I said I've got breast cancer, oh, well, at least it's breast cancer, that's the good cancer to get. At the time, I was horrified because it... No, breast cancer is not the good cancer to get. There is no good good cancer, cancer. no. And I still had to go through horrific treatment and I now still live with the fear of it coming back or spreading. So there is no good cancer, full stop. But I think now, looking back on it, with the time that's passed, I realised that what that person was trying to do 
was not intentionally diminish what I was going through, but just trying to make them and me feel better because they're faced with this terrible news. Suddenly, there's nothing they can do. And I think the brain's natural reaction is, oh, let me try and find something to say that will make this better for them and me. So I think, yes, I'm hoping that if people read the book who don't have cancer, it will help them to think about what they say to somebody who does get diagnosed with cancer. I think it really helps with that. Um, So you list the things that you really don't want to hear, like that at least it's the good cancer, or I think you mentioned that somebody had even said, I knew somebody who's had similar and they died with it. Yeah. Which absolutely floored me. Well, that happened when I was, I'd gone out for coffee with a friend and um, I can't remember, I must have, either had a very short hair, was towards the end of treatment, or I must have had a beanie on or something, but I would definitely have looked ill. And um, a friend of a friend came over to us to, to say, oh, hi, you're in the same coffee shop. I haven't seen you in a while. Not to me, but to the girl I was with. And uh, she explained, oh, you know, um, this is Sarah, we're just having a coffee. She, I've just taken her to radiotherapy or whatever it was. I can't remember the exact situation. And so the woman who had come over to us was, oh gosh, yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah, I had, you know, my, I can't remember who it was, my aunt had that. And, and then she, and I saw her face. She'd got so far down this line of telling me and I knew where she was going and I just sat there and thought, I know exactly what you're going to say, but I'm not going to make this easy for you. And she, she just came out with it. And then she died and she knew immediately that she'd said the wrong thing, but it was almost like her her mouth was working faster than her brain and she couldn't stop herself, even though she recognised that she was going to say the wrong thing and she very sheepishly disappeared as fast as she could after that. But people say that, they yeah. do, and it really isn't the right thing to say. I think the, the point is that I want people to think is it's not not to say anything but it's just to think about what to yeah. say and engage your brain first yeah, yeah. think before you speak yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely absolutely <laughs> <laughs> what I love about your book is I felt coming to meet you that I already knew you but you know <laughs> you've given so much of yourself into it and one of the bits that really struck me and, and made me laugh, because I think, you know, should the same ever, ever happen to me, I would be absolutely livid um, about getting cancer purely because, you know, if I just read a couple of the lines out here, you wrote, I've drunk green tea and kale smoothies for years, I've followed the freaking rules. And you do, you live your life thinking you're being healthy and surely to goodness with all the other unhealthy habits going on around me. I'm immune. That is absolutely right. I was so angry and I still am because I ticked all the boxes for doing the things to avoid getting cancer. Um, well, I wasn't doing all of those things to to avoid cancer predominantly. It was, I'm living a healthy lifestyle so that I can have a long and healthy life and avoid getting ill, whatever that illness might be, whether it's diabetes or um, 
a heart condition or um, any number of illnesses or um, conditions, including cancer. So it wasn't just about not getting cancer, it was, I just want to live as healthy a lifestyle as I possibly can. So I drank the right things, I ate the right things, I didn't eat the wrong things, um, I, I, I've never smoked, I exercise, I, um, I eat very healthily. And I drank my kale smoothies and my green tea. And I, I remember once um, I had a, an intern share a room with me. She was from Germany at work. She was a lovely girl. And um, she was in her early 20s, so she'd kind of done a lot of studying. And she said she was telling me once about how she had an opportunity to do a, a, an amazing sailing um, competition with, on one of those big boats that you see with lots of people on mm. and it was uh, she was doing it with um, one of Germany's uh, renowned oncologists and I don't know how the subject came up but the subject came up of you know antioxidants and eating things to avoid cancer and one of the things that he had said to her was uh, a small square of dark chocolate has a lot of antioxidants in and is actually not that bad for you and can be quite good for you and what I'm saying now is you know don't, don't take my word for it this is just what, what she said to me and I remember that because dark chocolate was the only sweet thing that I would eat I wouldn't have sweets or milk chocolate or puddings or cakes I if I felt the need for a sweet treat, it would be a small dark, square of dark chocolate. So I always remember that because, you know, it didn't work. <laughs> I still got cancer. And I find that quite scary because a lot of what I do as a doctor, I'm obviously talking about health and lifestyle choices and looking after your, your nutrition yeah. and exercising. But actually none of that offers any immunity to, it doesn't. to a lot of things like, like cancer, yeah. maybe diabetes and heart disease. Yeah. but actually cancer's the thing that everybody is scared of yes. and fears the most and no matter what trends you see supplements that people offer you before or after treatment none of them really mean an awful lot do they and I realized that because of my lifestyle so I had just after well around the time I was diagnosed I was called into my local GP surgery for my over 40 health check so I was 42 and they give an over 40s health check to um, everyone as they reach that age. And I was called in for it around the time I was diagnosed. Um, I, I actually ended up going for the appointment after I'd been diagnosed. I, I still wanted to go because I thought, well, I, you know, okay, I, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer, but let's just check that everything else is, is yeah. okay. There's no harm in going for it. And the GP surgery actually said, yes, yeah, still come in, still worth yeah. coming in. And so I went in and I had the blood test, the cholesterol levels checked, heart pressure, heart um, checked, blood pressure checked, and you know, all the checks that come with that type yeah. of, of check. And I scored brilliantly across the board. And the nurse that carried out the, the health assessment for me was, yeah, brilliant. You're healthy. You're within yeah. really good range of everything for your age. You're really healthy. And yet, I was sitting there having just been diagnosed with breast cancer. I think it just shows, doesn't it, that sadly, 
scarily, unfortunately, that whatever you do to try and stay healthy, something like cancer is indiscriminate. And I spent a lot of time since I was diagnosed three years ago trying to work out why I have had breast cancer. Why did I get it? Why me? Why someone who was as healthy as I was? And I, from reading a lot of um, information and reading commentary from um, people within the field, experts and professionals, actually what it comes down to is that if you've got breasts, you're at risk of breast cancer. It's that simple. It's that simple. Yeah. And I think that's an important message, isn't it? That no matter how careful you are with all aspects of your health, you still need to check yourself. You do. And check yourself regularly. And actually, don't just have a quick squeeze in the shower once in a while. Find out how to check properly, because there are ways of checking properly, how regularly you need to check. And it's really important to to check yourself to get to know what's normal for you because I had breast cysts before I had breast cancer, which are completely unrelated. They have nothing to do with cancer. And I was specifically told my, my consultant that there was no correlation between having breast cysts and then developing breast cancer. But because I had breast cysts, which are small, squishy, lumps in my breasts I had to get to know what was normal for me unfortunately because of the way that my breast cancer presented itself I didn't actually have a breast tumour that I could then compare to the breast cysts but the fact that I was checking my breasts and knowing actually that that feels like a lump but it's a bit squishy so it's a it's probably a cyst meant that I got to know my breasts and know what was normal for me. So it's really important for everybody to know what's normal for them. And and also, I think there are a lot of... um, Just point out that there are a lot of organisations where they give advice for checking breasts. There's Breast Cancer Now website, Copperfeel and Know Your Lemons. They're the three that I would recommend. And they give great advice on what to check for. And actually some of those if not all of them you can sign up for text messages That's to remind you so yeah. that you can um, be reminded actually it's the time of the month yeah. to check um, yeah so they're, they're really really, really helpful useful. and and also what's really important is to not just check your breasts but to check your armpits hugely important because yeah. I had a lump in my armpit which was the only sign of breast cancer, well actually the only sign that something was going yeah. on, yeah. turned out that it was breast cancer. And also um, the chest area uh, above your chest, so sort of up to your collarbone and across to your shoulders, so the whole chest area, not just the breasts. I think possibly for you, I might be wrong in saying this, but actually there's a lot written about check your breasts um look for changes in your nipples, any inversion, any discharge. And then almost as an afterthought, there's check into your armpits. It's yeah. not hugely publicised that actually that might be the only thing that you, you notice. You're absolutely right, Penny. Um, even when you see all these posters telling you what to look for, some of them don't even mention the armpits. And 
So part of my awareness raising is to really drum home to everybody if there's anything going on in your armpits to get them checked out. Um, yes, my situation was unusual, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen to anyone else. So it's always vitally important to not only check your breasts, but keep an eye on your armpits as well. Yeah, yeah. thank you for you know, raising awareness <laughs> about that, because I think it's such a, such a big thing, isn't it? Yeah. What would you say to somebody who was sat in front of you, you know, looking, because I know your book is full of practical tips and advice, and one of the things that I actually didn't really know an awful lot about was the cold cap. So if you were sat there with a friend who was about to go to her first chemotherapy session, what would your sort of tips be on what to expect, what, what should she potentially take with her, um, mm -hmm. and what, what is the cold cap? Well, first of all, I'll start off with the cold cap, um, which I also didn't know about until I was diagnosed with cancer and a friend of mine flagged it up for me. It's a, a hat that you can wear whilst you're having your chemotherapy infusion, which is very, very cold and freezes the hair follicles so that the chemotherapy drugs um, cannot destroy them and thus you can keep your hair. And because for a lot of types of chemotherapy, it causes hair loss. Not every type of chemotherapy, so that's a question for your oncologist is, will the type of chemotherapy that I have cause hair loss? If the answer is yes, probably, or most likely, or definitely, it's worth then checking if you, your hospital has this cold cap. Um, again, not every hospital has it. I think they are trying to bring it out into more and more hospitals. More and more hospitals are getting these particular machines. Um, and what happens is you go in for your chemotherapy session and you wet your hair, put conditioner over it, put this hat on, and it's like um, a hat made of tubes round, wound round and round into the shape of a hat and in those tubes something some sort of substance a bit like I suppose car antifreeze that can freeze at a really cold temperature and then you wear that for the entirety of the chemotherapy infusion and and actually it has great success I've I've done a Q&A for the website with um, Paxman Scalp Calling and and also I've spoken and, and met a lot of women who have done this and the results are, they're really very, very good. Um, it is very cold when you put it on your head and for me, I tried it because I didn't want to lose my hair and I had the opportunity to try it. It didn't suit me. I think people have different pain thresholds. I think people can cope with the cold at different levels. Again, I've talked to people who have said, well, it was cold, but I could deal with it and it was fine. I yeah. just um, put in my earbuds and listened to some calming music and, and I was fine with it. Um, and other people at the other end of the spectrum just literally cannot stand the weight or the pain of the cold. So everyone's different, yeah. again, another example of everybody being different but if you have the opportunity to try it and you don't want to lose your hair then I would definitely recommend trying it and then going on to your the other part of the question which is if someone's going in for chemotherapy 
um, they've got their first session coming up, what to take. Um, I think really you just you take a bag with some some comforts in so take perhaps some nice warm socks that you can wear you can you can be in hospital for a number of hours and if you can make yourself cozy and comfortable um that's that that will make it go a little bit faster make it a little bit more comfortable for you so cozy socks or slippers maybe a shawl or a scarf um some sweets because when the chemotherapy drugs hit you um, they can leave a really horrible metallic taste in your mouth so I used to... Can that happen during the infusion? It, it can happen during the infusion um, it, for me it what I felt was you can when they when the, the drugs are first put in it's you sort of get this hit of a, a funny taste in your mouth straight away um, and then it, it passes, whether it passes or you just get used to it, I'm not sure, but there's definitely something straight away. And then at the end, um, your mouth can get dry and you can have a horrible taste in your mouth. So I took extra strong mints and I'd have one when it was just hitting me yeah. and then I'd have you know one at the end or actually um, I like those big... Haribo strawberries they were great so whatever takes your fancy doesn't have to be mint but that sort of thing um check if the hospital is going to provide lunch or snacks a lot of chemo wards do bring lunch round it might not be to your taste so take something that suits you a sandwich or a salad or something um maybe a flask of soup whatever suits you um you're usually provided with cups of tea and water, but again, these may taste funny. So you might want to take your own drinks, such as a um, a water bottle with some water in, but maybe infuse it with some sliced lemons or yeah. some squash or something like that. Um, take, definitely take snacks because you don't know how long you're going to be there sure. for. So yeah. definitely yeah. snacks. Um, things to do like a magazine, a book, um, you might not have the um, attention span to, to read it while you're there but you might do so it, there's no harm in taking it puzzle books um, mindfulness coloring books um, something download something on your phone to listen to podcast audio book uh, a relaxation recording I actually had a relaxation recording on my phone that a friend of mine created especially for me that's what she does and um, she taught me through walking down some steps into my safe healing place and I'd listen to that while I was having mine yeah. so yeah there's and there are lots of tips on what to take to chemotherapy both in the book and on the website as well I think hearing it from somebody who's been through it makes the world of difference if you just google and go on to I don't think it's even on the NHS website but if you try and find it somewhere yeah a lot of it comes from people who actually haven't ever been in that position yeah. don't know like your taste might change almost immediately and yes. the glass of water that's offered to you tastes of something entirely different so yeah a hospital so water never tastes nice anyway I don't know whether it's the vessel it's given to you <laughs> in or what but yeah it's not good so I think the key is to take more than you might need yeah. um, you know in a hold or in a bag you can't have too many home comforts with you because the worst thing is to be there and want something that you don't have with you. Yeah. 
How long does it roughly take? So it depends on the hospital and it depends on the drug you're having. Um, it can take up to three hours, maybe sometimes more. You arrive and you usually sit around and wait to be called in. Um, maybe have you know have time for a coffee or something. Then you're called in and. Most of the time, and most hospitals, I think, tend to weigh the patient, um, blood pressure, um, temperature, maybe a couple of other checks, just to check that you're healthy enough. By this point, you will have already had your blood test to check that your blood levels are um, at the right level for you to have chemotherapy, because if you don't have enough um, white blood cells because you're... um, coming down with a virus or something, they won't allow you to proceed with chemotherapy that day. So they'll already have done the test. Um, so those tests and checks take a little while. It's a bit of faffing around with that. Um, then you're, you're hooked up and you have some pre-meds and um, steroids pumped through you. And that can take a little while. Um, then you have a saline flush pumped through you and then you have your chemotherapy drugs and the drugs drip through the tubes rather than flow through the tubes so it is quite a slow process and you do sit there hooked up having something whether it's the chemo drug a saline flush uh, steroids um, whatever it is being pumped through you for a number of hours so and it was quite a while ago that that I did it, but it could be up to two or three hours that you're sitting there hooked up to the machine. And then once you're finished, you're unhooked. And what happens in some hospitals and with some drugs and with some patients, again, everybody's different, is that you might need to stay for a little while longer just so that the hospital can check that you don't have any adverse reactions or um, any allergic reactions. So for example, I had two chemo drugs. I had EC for six sessions and then I um, had a, a new drug called Taxol. And the first time that I had that, they kept me in the hospital for an extra, I think an hour or two, I can't remember, just to check because it was new, I hadn't had it before and these drugs are incredibly strong. Um, They wanted to check I didn't have an adverse reaction to it. I didn't, left the hospital, felt my top lip, felt a bit funny, went back in, turns out it was an allergic reaction. Um, So they are really hot on that and that's why actually, the process of the actual chemotherapy infusion can take two or three hours, but you're in the hospital for longer than that Long because time. of yeah all yeah. the pre-chemo checks and assessments and then the post-chemo checks. So, yeah, you can be out of the house for quite a while. Long time, for yeah. the sounds of things. Yeah. yeah. What I'll do at the end of the podcast actually is make a give a link for your website because Great. it's got so many useful checklists and. And things that people will need need to refer to. Um, Great. Otherwise, I'll sit here for hours <laughs> quizzing you about about everything. Just go through all the list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing I wanted to talk about that was in your book that I absolutely loved was you describe feelings being on your shoulder, and 
it's interesting if you if you look out for it you can see how the feelings progress during the book and you talk a lot about sadness and loneliness and the fear and anxiety but then coming through to to the hope and you can identify when when things start to change was that in some ways was it easier for you to put I, I guess the feelings like that on your on your shoulder did that make it easier to to talk about them or, or how, how I, did that come about I think uh, so when I wrote the book I'd I was coming to the end of treatment when I first started writing the book. So I was still, I think I'd either, I was either having radiotherapy or I'd just finished, but I was still very much in the midst of the treatment and very much in the midst of all those emotions that come with having breast cancer um, and going through treatment. And I, I think talking about, for example, breast cancer as and something sitting there on my shoulder was a way for me to process it and deal with it as something outside of me. So, and the same with anxiety and fear, fear sitting on my shoulder, that actually these were alien concepts to me. They were new. They were things that were that had joined our family, that had joined me, that had come to visit me. I didn't want them to be part of me. I didn't want them to come inside me. I, I wanted to keep them separate to me. I don't know if that makes sense, but I didn't want it to... And, and this was part of how writing about it was really therapeutic. And I think that by putting these emotions as sort of separate entities really and writing about them in that way that in turn allowed me to deal with them in that way so I could take take fear for example and I talk about in the book how fear was sitting on my shoulder and whispering in my ear Fear wasn't part of me and I didn't want to allow it to be part of me and I want I knew I was going to be fearful but I didn't want it to stay with me and I think if I have something sitting on my shoulder I can brush it off yeah I don't need it to actually be inside my head because it's harder to get rid of it if it's inside your head than if it's just sitting on your shoulder and you can just brush it off your shoulder not as easy as that no. but that was the thinking yeah. behind it and I think actually when I was writing I don't think I really gave it a great deal of thought as to why I'm writing in this way but talking about it now is actually allowing me to address it and say yes it's because I didn't want all these horrible emotions to become part of me that I couldn't get rid of but rather just be visitors to yeah. me and visitors to the family that weren't going to stay. They were just visitors. I love that, that concept. You acknowledge it um, and the presence, but externalising it as well. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And I know you talk a lot about your support network, how amazing your husband's been, and you talk about various friends who've had a whole host of reactions to it all. I'm going to read a sentence from your book that really struck me and I think 
you know, it's important for people. I guess I'll read it and then get your, okay. your reaction to it. Um, so you wrote, you can have all the love in the world directed your way, but strangely, you can still feel the loneliest you've ever felt. And that really struck me, um, knowing from your book that you had a massive support network, but it was you, wasn't it? It was you who was going through it. And Yeah. Um, I honestly was incredibly lucky and with all the kindness and the support, the practical help, the emotional support, absolutely off the charts. And um, I do realise how lucky I was to have that. Um, I've got some great friends, amazing family, like you say, a really supportive husband. So um, that sentence doesn't diminish anything that they did for me. But what the sentence means is that unless someone has been through what you're going through and they can't really understand how you're feeling and in my close family and my close friends so my support network who was who were here for me on a daily basis I didn't have anyone there who knew how I was feeling or who I could talk to and so you sort of feel like you're in a separate reality in some ways. You you feel like you're sometimes you're watching everyone else carrying on with their lives just as normal, nothing's changed for them. But for you, everything has changed. Your whole world has been turned upside down and sometimes it's almost like you're outside of normality and looking in at everyone carrying on and and that's the loneliness because you're that you're the only person there in that other reality. You're the only person who is um, going through what you're going through. And I think that probably isn't just cancer. I think it's a lot of traumatic life experiences that people go through, and their immediate support network can be so kind and loving and supportive and do absolutely everything they can to try and understand. But unless someone has experienced it, they just don't know yeah. what you're going through. And I like that you're able to acknowledge that and talk about it, because a lot of people might feel like that, but not, not speak up or not yeah. realise that actually it's okay to feel like that. That's that's part of, of the process to it some is. degree. It is. It's absolutely 100% normal to feel like that and to feel lonely even though you have all this love surrounding you and I think some people with with that feeling they they can feel resentful because they are different and they're going through something that no one understands and they can feel angry about it and frustrated and I think all of those emotions are 100% valid and understandable um, what I now know is at the time I didn't have a book that I could read that I could relate to and that's part of the reason that I've written this book is for those people who are feeling lonely to read and to say actually you know what I'm not the only one yeah. I'm yeah. there are other people and and actually again that is a big part of why on the website I publish guest blogs so 
uh, every week there's a guest blog from somebody who's either going through breast cancer or has been through breast cancer dealing with a different topic, whether it's loneliness or relationships or pregnancy and cancer, whatever the topic is, there's a different one. And I'm putting those on the website every week so that people who are feeling lonely going through it can read those relate to what's being written and and actually perhaps helpful hopefully feel a little bit less lonely yeah and i think it's nice to have different viewpoints as well as mix you you always make it clear that there's no one size fits all in this yeah and whilst your journey will be different to everybody else's then there'll be parts of it that are similar yeah. and the same of the guest bloggers so people can yeah. pick and mix really can't That's they That's absolutely true and I'm glad you've pointed that out Penny because it is so important to realise that everyone's experience is different. We, there, I was stunned to find out that there were different types of breast cancer. <laughs> I thought breast cancer was breast cancer but no there are different types which means that people have different treatments, they have different surgeries treatments affect people differently so some people will suffer from certain side effects and other people won't be bothered by those side effects and it is really so different for everybody and the book and the website are not saying to someone who's going through breast cancer this is what happened to me so this is what's going to happen to you it's all very much a part of saying this is what might happen to you and this is what's happened to someone it isn't going to happen to you but here's their experience and people can read the guest blogs they can read the book and they can take from those what they need yeah yeah and just finally life after cancer is a whole different ball game isn't it how different is it and how is it changed you and your perspective and outlook on life so yes it's very different and I could talk to you for about three days <laughs> on life after cancer it's a huge topic it's when I was going through treatment and I think I honestly think that most people with cancer feel the same and experience the same thing when you're going through treatment, you've just had your diagnosis, so you're in shock and you're dealing with the fact that you have cancer. And you are very quickly put on the conveyor belt of cancer treatment. And cancer treatment keeps you very busy because you are either going in for a treatment, going in for a check, going in for an appointment, or recovering from side effects. And you're always aware of the next thing coming up, whether it's the next chemo infusion or the next radiotherapy appointment, whatever it is, you're, you're on this conveyor belt of treatment. You don't really have time to think about anything else. You're also trying to think about daily life, so th there's a lot to think about. And when I was going through treatment, I kept thinking, when I thought about it, oh, once this is over, I'll probably allow myself maybe a month or two to recover from treatment and then I'll go back to work and um, you know life will pick up and we'll all get back to normal. I genuinely believe that would happen and I got to the end of treatment, end of radiotherapy, I was still having Herceptin but Herceptin didn't really have the same side effects so I, I didn't feel as bad when I was having Herceptin. So I got to the end of radiotherapy and I thought 
well, I'll have a bit of a rest now and then um, think about going back to work and picking up where I left off. But it didn't happen because I was suddenly faced with this kind of, a, I suppose it was a second phase of shock, which was, oh my God, what has just happened? What, what What's just gone on? I, And you come to this point where you have to deal with what's just happened to you. So on a physical level, actually it takes a lot longer than a couple of months after treatment to, to get back up. I'm two and a half years post-treatment and I'm still experiencing fatigue and, um, and, and other symptoms. I'm actually doing really, really well, but I definitely know I've had cancer treatment on the physical level. Long, long time. Really, yes. But on an emotional level, this is when it all hits. And you're not told that while you're going through treatment. And in a way, I can understand why you're not told that when you're going through treatment, because treatment is hard enough to deal with. You don't want to be worrying about what's going to happen at the end. And I am kind of wary of of talking about it because I don't want to worry people about what's going to happen when they get to the end of treatment. But I do want to tell people because I don't think it's fair, like me, to go through all of this treatment under the illusion that things are going to immediately get back to normal and that I'm going to be mentally in the same place I was before. I think it's better to be forewarned. Forewarned is forearmed. So it is worth knowing if you're going through cancer treatment that when you get to the end of treatment that there might be again everyone's different but there might be a point at which you do have this realization of what you've gone through and that you have to deal with it for me that was the point where the anxiety just hit it was really hard I had um, and I didn't talk about this in the book because they kind of came after the point where the book ended but I then did have panic attacks which I'd never experienced before and I had all these strange emotions going on and I do talk about in the book speaking to a counsellor which I would recommend wholeheartedly that helped me enormously but I had to deal with the mental issues and that took a little while I'm in a really good place now I am as close to my pre-cancer normal as I think I'll ever be but it's not the same I'm definitely living in a and this is a phrase that people always talk about (laughs) a new normal and it's a horrible phrase because you think I was quite happy with my old normal I don't want a new one thanks very much but actually, for me, I, I'm quite happy in this new normal. I have a lot of aspects of my old normal. I really do. But the differences are positive ones. So I am, I'm not rushing around as much as I was. I, I was working four days a week. I, had, I have two children and I was juggling the, the children, the family home and working. It was crazy, chaotic, far too busy that's different now so I'm much I go through life at a slower pace now I am far more mindful of of 
the present, enjoying the moment, doing things that I enjoy. Um, yeah, so I'm just, I think it's a bit of a cancer cliche, but I do think that when you go through something like this, it does lead you to appreciate life a lot more and live with that daily gratitude for being here and if I'm having a bad time for whatever reason not cancer related um, I just bring myself back to the here and now and be thankful that I'm actually here so yeah there are some differences but uh, I would say on the whole they're for the better again I have to just say you know and I know you say that you don't want to be called inspiring or, you know, <laughs> that you've been strong. But certainly for me, and I'm sitting here, I guess, from with a medical harm, but also as a human and a person, um, that, you know, I think your book is like an absolute breath of fresh air. It was very much needed and missing from the market um, with all of the, not just the practical advice, um, but the honesty and the truth and everything that came out of it. So I will put a link on because I think it's actually a, a must read for anybody and I feel absolutely honoured to have spoken to you today, Sarah, so thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you very much, Penny. As a doctor, I found Sarah's approach to her cancer both similar to mine, but at the same time, worlds apart. I think it's probably fair to say that we both compartmentalise me as you would expect in a very medical way I chunk things in terms of diagnosis staging treatment medication side effects thinking about the emotional toll on the individual social financial implications on the wider family and while Sarah's compartments are similar with the exception of one she also has a different compartment that I'm going to put my hands up and say wasn't really on my my radar and yet was so important. She speaks about the practicalities and she talks about these in a, in a lot of detail but for an example she'll mention about pillows being needed to support your arm following node clearance, bags to carry drains in after surgery, making sure you've got warm socks and a gentle toothbrush for after chemotherapy, what to eat in terms of making sure you get your dietary requirements following chemotherapy when your taste buds and your taste is affected and you feel nauseated. All of these things that make the journey for, for an individual rather than just focusing on, on the medical side. The one compartment that she doesn't have is prognosis. She, and and I think I touched on this earlier, she mentioned that she typed into Google breast cancer soon after she was diagnosed and she was hit with a flurry of staging boxes and diagrams and prognosis and it was enough to strike the fear into her heart, enough to try and find the practical advice that she was so craving without having to go near the internet. And I think that's important for me as a doctor to make sure that I don't just simply launch into giving somebody information that they're not ready for and making sure that we're on the same page. The other really important part for me was the after. What happens after? And I always knew that the the process of going through multiple hospital appointments, 
having any combination of surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, the frequent check-ins and the scans would almost be akin to being institutionalised. And whilst I knew that there'd be a massive emotional toll at the point of diagnosis, I always assumed that a huge one would also come after, but I'm not sure I'd fully appreciated this. I also had the opportunity to speak to Hayley, a lady I used to work with who was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer at the age of 34. I asked her how cancer had changed her and this is what she said. You think, oh bloody hell, you know, when does it end? When does it end? But yeah, that that's a hard one. I think definitely for me is the after. Yeah. Very very big struggle after. And I'll still get days when I really struggle and you know but they're few and far between now. After speaking to Sarah and Haley, my dialogue's definitely changed. I feel that I've got a better appreciation of the journey that patients are going through outside of the, the scope of just the medical. And I hope that it's given you some pause for thought too. Thank you so much for listening to Naked Health.